Come on, good morning, church. Open your copy of God's Word to 1 Peter. We've been in the series Hope in the Dark. Peter is under siege. Massive persecution. People are running for their lives. I don't know if you feel like you're in a dark place. Are you running for your life? Is Christianity illegal? Somebody say not yet, but maybe in our lifetime. And so do you think that maybe even though this letter is 2,000 years old, that maybe it's speaking directly into the scenarios that we have going on? Consider this. Roman Empire is crumbling. It's falling apart. It was the empire of world domination. It was the superpower of its day. And the leadership is compromising and compromising. And everybody looking out for themselves. And everybody has a hidden agenda. And the little guys are running scared, wondering what's going to happen next. I just wish the Bible is relevant. You know what I mean? I, mean, I just wish, I wish there was some relevancy to our daily lives of the church in AD 60 thought, this is it. This is the end. Maybe the end of their lives and maybe the end of the faith. And they weren't sure what was going to happen. And Peter reemphasizes to us again and again on every page, every chapter, there's hope. There's hope. There's hope. No matter how dark, no matter what happens, even if their sexuality has gone mad, even if there's division, selfishness, infighting from the top all the way down, even if there's no safe place, God is our refuge. And Christians were the minority caught up in a crumbling empire and so very relevant for you and for me this morning. So we're going to be starting in 1 Peter 3, chapter 3, and it wraps up with this, verses 13 through 22. And that's where we're going to be starting thinking about this subject, hoping for heaven in a world going to hell. How do you hope for heaven in a world going to hell? What's our part? What's our part in the midst of the madness and the darkness and the chaos? How will you respond to what's happening to you? You've got a choice today. Here we go. Verse 13, if you are taking notes, and I hope you are, my worst misery, write this down, my worst misery is for my best ministry. My worst misery is for my best ministry. I don't know if you walked in this morning with the question of, why God? God, what are you doing? Where are you? Why is this happening? Misery, misery. For some, you thought that this year was going to be different and this year is worse. You thought 2020 was as bad as it gets. Oh no, you ain't seen nothing yet. What do you do with the miseries of life? What do you do when it all comes crumbling down? Here's where Peter is calling us to. Verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Here's a question. Am I passionate about doing good? Am I zealous? Am I passionate about doing good despite the cost? Because he says this, and if you're doing good, who's going to harm you? And then the very next verse, somebody say, but here it is. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, Peter's assuming if you do good, you're probably going to avoid some pain. But guess what? Even if you live rightly, you are going to suffer. But he promises this, right? You will be blessed. You'll be blessed. Turn to your neighbor and say, you will be blessed. We can encourage each other. You will be blessed if, if you're doing what is right, regardless of if others are doing wrong, it doesn't matter what they do. What are you doing? I'm sick and tired of messing up and blowing it and screwing up and failing and then suffering the consequences. And then the woe is me and 
It's your fault. Own it, right? You did something stupid. You failed. You suffered the consequences. But God says, this is so different. What if you're passionate about doing what is right in God's eyes and then things don't go your way and then pain and suffering still comes and loss and hurt? He says, blessing. You're going to be blessed. When you, when you do it God's way, it's still going to hurt. Could I just be, be real, real blunt? Do we do that? Do we do that in church? You're going to suffer either way. You live in a sin-cursed world. You're a wicked sinner and you're surrounded with wicked sinners. Your life is going to be a mess. But you have a choice to make. Be miserable with consequences of your own sin or are you going to suffer because you're taking a stand, you're stepping up and you're doing the right thing and God says, I want to bless you. There's blessing. Blessing for doing what is right. Here are the two options. How do Christians get in trouble? How is it that we face problems? So if I do what is wrong, Trouble's going to come my way. Everybody say yes. Okay. And if I do what's right, trouble is going to come my way. Everybody say yes. Okay. If you do what's wrong, you are in trouble with God, but you're okay with the world. You're okay with friends. You're okay with your peer group. You're okay with your neighbors. You're okay with your coworkers, right? As long as you fit in and just go down the lazy river in your inner tube and just go with the flow of what everybody else is doing, you're at odds with God, but at least you're, you're good with your buddies. Well, Peter's saying this. Do what's right, and trouble may come your way. And even though the world hates you, your father is crazy about you, and he loves you, and he's walking with you in the trouble that comes, but you have trouble because you're doing what's right in God's eyes. I don't know about you, but I need more of that in my life. I'm getting in trouble because I'm doing the right thing. More of that. Some of you know my testimony that whole lot of trouble from doing what was wrong. I wasn't facing 20 years in prison because uh, I was doing the right thing. I know what it's like to have consequences, extreme consequences for being chummy with the world, but it's a very different thing to say, I'm going to hop out of the inner tube in the lazy river. I'm going to plant my feet on the, the bedrock and I'm going to start going against the stream and trouble's coming my way, but at least I know why. Because if I'm with Jesus, then I'm going to have trouble, but it's the right type of trouble that's going to come my way. Everybody say that's good news. That you can actually interpret, why is this happening? Why is this happening? Well, if I'm doing what's right, I know why it's happening. If it happened to Jesus, it's going to happen to me. And Peter wants to encourage us of this. Verse 14, back to 14. Eyes in Scripture, have no fear of them, he says. Uh, even, even if you are going to do what's right and, and someone does something wrong in return, don't fear them. Don't be troubled. Don't, don't be fearful and don't be troubled in your heart. But instead, somebody say instead. Yeah, instead something very different. Do something different. Respond differently. In your hearts, church, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared. How often should we be prepared? Always, always, always. Siempre. Every single time that I have an opportunity, I am prepared to do what? To give a defense. To give a defense. I'm ready to defend to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, yet, somebody needs to hear this. I don't know who this is for, but the way you respond matters just as much 
as what you say, it's how you say it. Gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. Do you know how many videos go viral because Christians are recording themselves being gentle and respectful? Do you know how many go viral? None. Do you, know, do you know how many videos go viral because someone is so absolutely obnoxious, right? And everybody wants to see the obnoxious Christian destroying his witness, her witness. Man, those things, it lights up the interwebs every single day, right? There's a way to do it. Here's a question. Are you ready? If somebody was to ask you, why, why do you have hope? Why is it that you follow Jesus? Why is it that you call yourself a Christian? Why, why, why would you be ready? And let's even back up. Have you ever asked yourself why people don't ask you about the hope that you have because you don't have hope? Have you ever wondered why people aren't curious about your faith because they can't see any faith? Why is it that people aren't asking you about Jesus because they don't see Jesus in you? Why would they ask you? They'd ask somebody that looks like Jesus. If somebody is hopeless looking for hope, they're going to find somebody that's hopeful. Are you tracking with me? I don't know if I said that too quickly. Our world is in a dark, dark place. They are hopeless. And if the church is packed full of hopeless Christians, you ain't got nothing to defend. Nobody's knocking on your door. No texts, no phone calls because you're offering squat to them because you ain't living it. So Peter's assuming this. He's assuming the church is going to live the life that's seen, that's observable, and that people are going to ask, what's up with you? What's up with you? When's the last time that you praise God for misery and trouble and problems that have come your way? Because those problems allow you to respond in a way that is hopeful and it confuses the snot out of all of your observers. Everybody around you is going, your life is burning to the ground and yet you have hope. Everything is going wrong in your marriage and parenting and yet you seem very hopeful that this isn't the end of the story and that there's a future. What's up with that? Didn't you say that you used to get in tons of trouble and that your life was a mess? It's not really like that anymore. What happened? I knew you a few years back and you're different. How did you change? If people are not asking you those questions, you should be very concerned because your light's not shining in a dark world and your hope is not rising up because it's not founded in God. But all that could change today. You could say, I'm done. I'm done living just like the world, going with the flow. My witness is powerful when I'm hopeful, when my hope is in the Lord, and my hope in the Lord is greater than my fear. To be blessed in suffering is to be fully satisfied in God. To be blessed while I'm suffering and everything is going wrong, this isn't the story that I wrote, but I'm satisfied in God no matter the circumstances. If Jesus is really Lord of my life, then I'll live ready to tell others about him. Are you ready? I can't speak for you, right? I only can speak for myself, right? Because I, I, I don't know how ready you are. On a scale of one to 10, just in your mind, you don't have to say anything. On a scale of one to 10, 
How ready do you feel that if somebody asks you questions about Jesus, about the Bible, about church, about God, about the end times, about what's up with this whole Holy Spirit thing, what's up with like Antichrist and, and Satan, and what's up with all of these issues that I'm hearing things about? Do you have answers? Do you have answers? On a scale of one to ten, where are you at? Are you like a four? Are we at a 2.5? Like I, I think I'm, I'm seven-ish. Seven-ish. What if, what if you could say today, by the end of the year, I want to take it up at least two notches, right? I want to dial that up. I want to be prepared. I don't know the websites that you hit up or the YouTube channels that you're on, but what if the rest of the year you could be like, I'm going to gotquestions.org every single day and I'm making sure I have answers and I'm finding scripture. I'm going on YouTube and I'm going to hit up all kinds of apologetics. That's the word that we have here. Give a defense in the Greek is apologia. Apologetics is to be able to give a defense for what you believe, for what the Bible teaches. Are you scrolling endlessly, absorbing biblical truth that is going to help you be prepared? Or are you numbing out every single day with endless, mindless scrolling that leads to more defenselessness? Defenselessness. Or every day, you can pick up your not-so-smart phone and use it as a smartphone to do something smart with it, like get trained and equipped to be able to give a defense for why you have hope. I think all of us have questions. The question that you should be asking is, do I have answers when people ask? Because they should be asking. My worst misery is for my best ministry. Even though I'm not prone to think about misery as Preparation for ministry, every problem, every trial is preparation to get you in shape, to get you equipped, to get you the tools for ministry. So how do you respond when you face trouble? When you get in trouble, what are your default reactions? Here's two that Peter lays out. If we could summarize this, we could say from verses 14 and 15, he says, fear and trouble, don't do that because either they control my heart which makes me a compromised coward. Have you been there? I'm so scared of what they're going to think. They're going to judge me. I'm not going to fit in. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation with a job or in a neighborhood or school system. It doesn't even have to be you fearful. It could be a whole family dynamic of we're so concerned about what everybody else thinks. What does my extended family think of me? What do my coworkers think of me? I'm so fearful. They, 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 they. Somebody say they. They. They, those people, who are they for you? Who's they that you're so prone to be troubled by their opinion of you? Who is they that Peter is saying, do not fear them? That you're so anxious when you're around them. That you're so consumed with, I need to look a certain way in front of them. I can't look bad. And we got to put on a show. And we got to make sure that we cover up and hide. And we masquerade so that they don't find out what's really going on. Behind closed doors, I need to look the way for they. Who is they? Their opinion doesn't matter. There's one opinion that matters, and it's not they, it's he. Either I'm going to be fearful of, of him, or I'm going to be fearful of them, but it's one or the other. And I don't know where you need to be set free, but Peter wants to set the church free and say, do not fear, don't be troubled about what they would say, don't be a coward. Don't be cowardly. That is something that needs to be killed and put to death and put away. That's the old you. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's the old you. 
It's the old you. So, so after this morning, we're not going to be like, yeah, you're a coward. Yeah, preacher dude is talking to you, coward. No, preacher dude's talking to you, just, just you. We're, we're talking about you. Where are you at? Cowardly? Or if he controls my heart, do you know what God does? He makes even the most anxious courageous. Do you believe that? God has given us this heart, this spirit, this mindset, not of, not of fear, but of, of courage, to be courageous. There's a call on our life to be courageous. And where does that come from? Self-esteem? Somebody say, ah! No, 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 it's, it's not happening that way, right? It's God-esteem. It's lifting up my view of God. It's seeing God as huge and people small where I used to think, man, people are just so big and God's kind of out there somewhere. I don't know if you grew up just so fearful of people and pleasing people and overwhelmed and intimidated by people. So I don't know where your moments of that person intimidates me or my mother-in-law intimidates me or what are they going to say? The person that ridicules your faith that you're just like, there's no hope for them. Do not be troubled. Do not be fearful, but instead be consumed with God thoughts that change your attitude that pretty soon people are shrinking and God's vision in your mind is so overwhelming that you seek to please him and fear him alone. Can I get an amen? I hope that you're in a place. I want that. I want to be courageous. I'm tired of being a coward. Martin Luther said this, where the battle rages, do you believe the battle is still raging all these years later? Martin Luther wrote that 500 years ago. There is loyalty, he said. There is the loyalty of the soldier is proved in those battles. Where's your loyalty lie? Any little pressure about Jesus, about church, and do you just kind of, do you melt? Do you kind of cower? Do you, well, I'm, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I guess I kind of do the church thing a little bit. Yeah, Jesus. No, no, no. Like, are you serious about this religious thing? Or are you really a follower of Jesus? What's the deal? I think it's all stupid. I think the Bible's made up. Well, somebody smarter, please. Where are you? Tap me out. Maybe this year is a year where you're like, I'm going to stand firm. I'm not going to fear him. I'm not going to be afraid of her. I need to press in because my loyalty, somebody say loyalty. I'm a soldier. My loyalty is for King Jesus. Verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord. He's the king. Honor him as holy, set apart, unique in your mind, in your heart, high and lifted up. Always be prepared to give an offense. Anyone that asks you for the reason, the hope that is in you. Hope in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, does it say if? Does your translation say if? You see if there, when, 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 somebody say when, when you're slandered, it's coming to your doorstep. It's going to wash up on your shore. When you are slandered, attacked, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer doing good, if that should be God's will, than doing evil. So my witness is powerful when I'm, when I'm humble. When I'm walking humbly with my God, the overflow is, I'm going to be gentle. And I wonder how many of us are truth people and we really don't give a rip about how we come across because I'm just speaking the truth. Well, God cares. If you say the right things and you say it the wrong way, it's wrong. So just own that. 
when I talk about people and I talk to people, I am not gentle and I'm not respectful and it's sin and I need to confess it and I need to repent of it. When I talk to people that I disagree with greatly politically, economically, whatever it is, especially spiritually, especially on areas of life and death, heaven and hell, do you speak in a way that's gentle and respectful? What is the tone of your rebuttals, of your arguments? You're contagious with this attitude. You're contagious. So stop spreading cancer and start spreading an attitude of respect and gentleness towards those that you disagree with because it's commanded. And so don't live in sin any longer. Be free. Be free to be gentle and respectful. But that's kind of weak, dude, isn't it? That's for sissies. All the little ladies, they can be gentle. No, the greatest of godly men throughout history have been able to stand up in the face of arguments and attacks and opposition and say, just like Jesus, forgive them. They, they don't know what they're doing. What if, what if we could be more like Jesus and less like the viral videos of apologetics? What if we could defend in a way that's uniquely Christ-like? So what is Peter trying to say? Could, could we do some, some bottom line here? How can I become an intentional witness? Here's some takeaways. Witness with gentleness. Witness with respect. Witness with a good conscience that you're doing the right thing with the right motives. And witness with a purpose that you want to do it to honor God and you want to put them to shame, not with your words, but with your humility, not with your arguments, but with your tone. In summary, my biblical convictions will be tested in the battles. Do you believe that? It's one thing for us here to say, yeah, I got strong convictions. I, I believe some things pretty firmly. Do you know how I know that you really believe that? Only when you are confronted and there is arguments and attacks and you're persecuted and you're opposed, if you stand firm then, do you know what it proves? That you really do have convictions. Untested convictions are not convictions at all. So don't be surprised. Turn to your neighbor and say, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised with the hardships, with the troubles. Don't be surprised because God wants you to have a firm foundation, roots going down deep, convictions convictions because they've been tested in the battle on the battlefield so how how are you doing how are you doing with that how about this i i must connect before i correct i must connect before i correct what what is peter saying he's saying over and over there is something about a gentle and respectful attitude because i see them as an image bearer I see them as someone that Jesus desires to rescue and forgive. I look at them as a person. I connect with them. I don't see them as the enemy. I don't see them just as a talking head. I don't see them as a problem to snuff out or to avoid. Instead, the people that are coming against me, I see them as a potential relationship to build. Some of the greatest relationships of people that have totally opposed Christianity. We spent five years in the Caribbean. Three of those years, two guys that were willing to go through the Bible. And they were both flaming homosexuals, and they hated God, but they were willing to come to church, and they were willing to sit down with me and open the Bible and just ask questions. They said, I don't care what God says about this. I think God's fine with this, even if there was a God. But they were willing to sit down and read the Bible. For three years, we just we read the Bible, and every time that I opened the Bible, guess what I was tempted to do? You're wrong! 
Repent! And instead, Peter, help me out here. Remind me of your words by the power of the Holy Spirit, gentle and respectful. There was something that God was doing in changing me to be gentle and respectful as much as the Word of God seeds being planted in their lives. But something did happen. They were blown away again and again by how is it that we can have a cordial, a calm conversation like this because you think I'm going to hell, don't you? If you don't repent of your sinful lifestyle, no matter what that lifestyle is, Yes, the penalty for your rebellion is death, eternal separation. And that's why I'm here talking to you about it, because I care. God challenged me about, I'm sending you in on the front lines to gently speak, to connect before I, before I correct. Talk about this, I must live my faith. I have to live it, then explain my faith. Can we confront something here? Talk is cheap. And for far too long, the church has been accused, and I think correctly accused of, of this specifically. There is this issue where we want to consistently, over and over again, explain the faith, argue the faith, when there's such glaring things in our lives. Excuse me, sir, could you begin living what you're trying to explain to me? Could, could you begin practicing these things that you preach to me? Hey, Christian. You're a hypocrite. Go get your life right first. Then come back and explain to me what the faith teaches. I, I wish they were just honest. Because for some of us, it's much easier to argue with those instead of actually getting alone with God, allowing him to have his way in our own hearts to change us and transform us. So in Jesus' name, I wonder if we just shut up, be transformed, then open your mouth. Be quiet. Start repenting yourself, then call others to repentance. But that's no fun. Can we agree? Nobody wants to do that. I, I want to talk. I don't want to change. I want them to change. I, I don't need to change. They need to change. No, we all need to change. God's changing his people just as much as he's changing those that he's reaching through his people. And I must let the message of Christ be offensive, not the messenger. Gentleness and respect means the messenger comes in with a hard message and does it in a way that glorifies the God of the message. I don't know where you're at, but today, maybe more than ever, the gospel is absolutely, abhorrently offensive. Can we just be okay with that? I don't know who in the room is still wrestling with, well, is there a way to kind of soften the blow and kind of explain it in a way that eases the pain? No, no. No, when you tell somebody that they are a sinner and they are evil at heart and that they deserve an eternal torment of hell, there is no way to spin that without that being incredibly offensive. I look back at my life and I think 21 years of my life, I don't know when you came to Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, but 21 years of my life, I don't remember a single person that offended me with the gospel. And I just wonder, where were all of the lovers that were willing to offend? Where were all of the Christians that were bold, willing to upset a relationship and a friendship? Where were all the people that were willing to punch me in the face and then give me a hug in Jesus' name? Where were they? 
because they weren't knocking on my door. They weren't calling me. They weren't showing up. And I just thought to myself, when I came to Christ at 21, it's okay if I'm offensive. I got to get used to being offensive because, man, I wish I would have been offended my whole upbringing. I wish somebody would have told me the truth and maybe God's putting on your heart very specific people that you're saying, I'm not going to fear them. I'm not going to be troubled by what they think of me. I need to speak. I need to speak gently and carefully, but I need to speak boldly even if I'm shaking while I'm speaking. I need to do it. There's so much at stake. So the Lord saves us from our sin. The Lord begins the long work of conforming us to the image of Jesus. Here's the reality. People don't like it. Peter's like, they're not going to like it. They're going to confront you. And everybody wants us to live in fear of their gods and reject our God. And our agenda is that we would fear the one true God and expose all of the idolatry of false worship in the world. Even if we have to do it a little anxious and a little nervous, deep down in our hearts, God is changing us. Is he changing you? He's changing us to be bold and gentle, to speak up about the truth respectfully, to do both. And do you know how that's possible? Only by the power of the Holy Spirit because nobody naturally is gentle, respectful, and disagrees with great conviction about falsehoods in the world. Nobody does that. And we long to be free from the evil that would mess up our witness. Because if we don't do it this way, it says that we would put our accusers to shame. Do you see that? Peter says, if you do it a certain way, if you do it respectfully and gently, you're going to put them to shame. The more that they're confused by your holiness, by your kindness, the more shame that's heaped on them by God, not you. But just take inventory of the past few months. Think about the conversations you've had this year. How many times have you had an opportunity to live it, to speak it, and instead you made an absolute mess? You had an interaction with somebody that was far from God or that already was a little cynical towards the church. And after their interaction with you, they're like, for sure I'm done, right? For sure, if that's what Christians are like. And I wonder what it would sound like if this week you would make a phone call and say, how I treated you, how I responded to you, our interaction was evil. I was a hypocrite. Will you please forgive me? I was wrong. Christians don't live that way, and I, I blew it. I messed up, and I'm going to own that because God's working on me to be gentle and respectful and to live with hope, not anger, rage, and spite. God's changing me. God's changing me. How about this? We love our God by honoring and fearing him, and then we go and love our neighbor by not fearing them. Somebody say, I won't fear them. I won't do it. But by living as weird, peculiar people of God in the midst of a very dark, angry world, ready to call them to the same hope that we have. Whether we're asked, harassed, confronted, always ready, full of hope, always ready, full of hope. Somebody say that with me. Always ready, full of hope. One more time, come on. Always ready, full of hope. That's Peter's call. Are you always ready? Are you filled with hope? Are you going to respond in a way that brings glory to God and softens hardened hearts and brings walls down. Here we go. Number two, this is going to be much quicker, all right? Somebody say, hurry up. All right, all right, all right. My Christianity is about my Christ. My Christianity is about my Christ. If, if my worst misery is preparing me for my best ministry, if God's taken all the bad and he's 
working on me. Another way that we err that Peter's fired up about is keep this central. If your Christianity has veered, if it's become one-dimensional, if you are hammering something other than Jesus, you are not representing Christianity very accurately. If your Christianity is more about a political view, if your Christianity is more about vaccines and about mass, if your Christianity is more about church attendance, if your Christianity is more about dress and attire and standards, if your Christianity is more about what we're against and what we don't do, then you lost Jesus somewhere back there and you need to go back and you need to reconnect with him. Because if Jesus is not at the center, then it's not Christianity that you're living. So what does Peter tell us? He helps us with this. This is so awesome. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous, who's the righteous? Jesus is. He's the only righteous one that ever lived. Who did he suffer for? The unrighteous. Who's the unrighteous? Somebody say, that's me. That's me. That's me. What did he do that for? That he might bring us to God. We were far off and he wants to bring us near. Does he want to bring those people near? No, he wants to bring all of us, including them, starting with you, near to God, being put to death in the flesh. Did he stay dead? Did he stay dead? Here's good news. Made alive in the Spirit. My witness is powerful when it's empowered by the Spirit, when it's his power in me, not me trying to convince somebody. Can we put to death all the conversations that start with, well, you know you should. You know you really need to. You need to. You need to stop. You need to start. Do you know Jesus? Are you following him? Are you right with him? Have you been brought near to him? I can't expect you to start or stop anything. I don't know who's a thorn in your side. They're like, if they would just change, if they would just be different, I can't believe they, they know better, they know better. If it's not about Jesus, I don't know what you're trying to conform them to, but Jesus wants them conformed to his image, not yours. He's a better molder and shaper. My witness is so powerful when it's, when it's all about spirit-filled, Christ-centered call to worship God alone, the one who suffered for everybody. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. That's a super confusing verse, but we're going to bring out what's absolutely clear here. He mentions Noah, so there is a parallel. There's a connection that we need to make. Anybody know about this dude named Noah? Anybody hear about him? Like, is Noah the guy with the staff that parted the sea? No, 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 wrong guy. That's, that's Momo. That's Moses, right? right? Noah, ark, boat, animals. Got it? He is leaning way back into the OT, and he's saying, do you remember Noah? Do you remember Noah? Do you know what was going on back then? It was a picture. It was a picture of what's happening right now. The more things change, the more they stay the same, the more that God speaks, the more that these things keep getting brought back to mind. And here we go. Why did Peter choose to highlight Noah? Why Noah? Why Noah? Somebody asked me, why Noah? Why? Well, here it is. Because God was so patient. God waited. He was patient, patient. Somebody say he's patient. God's so patient that what? He watched a wicked, rebellious world for how long? 1,600 years. 1,600 years from Adam to Noah. Anybody think that's patience? A little bit of patience? Watching this hardness and this rebellion, it says 
that there was only always wickedness and anger and murder all the time, only, always, and he's watching patiently. And he says, Noah, here we go. I'm going to use you. <laughs> Noah could have been like, all right, how long is this going to take? I see the wickedness too. Uh, kill him. Kill them all. I don't know if Noah knew up front, but this thing was going to be 120 years. Not only is God patient, but God is trying to make us patient. He's trying to change our perspective. 120 years, and all he would do every single day is build a ship, preach repentance. Build a ship, preach repentance. I don't know if he had like a routine of, in the morning, I'm just going to build it. What did he build? He built a 1.4 million cubic feet ship that could fit 522 train cars inside of it. Where was his crew? I don't know how much how much the kids were a help, but 120 years. Patience, working with his hands, living by faith. And then in the afternoons, maybe he's like, all right, lunch is done. It's time to preach repentance. He preached for 120 years. How many people repented? Help me out, help me out, universal symbol. Uh, none, none, none. None of them would have it. None of them would listen. And guess what? Noah got so discouraged, he just quit and he stopped, right? Is that the end of his story? Is that going to be the end of yours? It's not working. I'm not changing. They're not changing. I give up. I quit. Peter's like, remember Noah. Remember Noah. Remember he's in a desert. All commentators, except for maybe two throughout history, all unanimously believe there had never been a drop of rain in all of history. What is a boat? What is it for? Your house is upside down. What are you building? It's a boat. What is that? Well, there's going to be a flood. What is a flood? Water's going to like fire up like geysers from the ground. And then there's going to be a flood of water that's going to crush people to death coming from the heavens. And they're like, we live in a desert. We live in a, a desert. We don't know what rain is. By faith, 120 years, building and preaching and building and preaching. They did not believe a judgment was coming by water. I wish we, we could relate to this. Do you believe that we live in a society where nobody believes there's a judgment coming by fire and it's coming soon? I don't know if you read the end of the story. A month from now, we're going to be diving into Revelation. So start reading Revelation 1 through 3. We're going to be kicking off Revelation. If you know the end of the story, the end of the story, just like God promised that he would never flood the earth again, it would never be a flood of water, but fire will be coming there will be a judgment like the world has never seen. I wish we could relate to Noah where we tell people and warn people and they have no ears to hear and they don't care. They don't give a rip about your warnings. We need reminders from Noah. Noah and his family trusted God. They obeyed God. They invited others to join them. They didn't say, so long, suckers. You voted for the wrong guy. I'm not with you. I'm against you. He said every single day, come, come, come to the place of safety. Come, come join us. Be with us. Escape the judgment to come. We want to be together in this. And no one responded. Jesus is our ark. And no one is going in unless God opens blind eyes and hardened hearts. 
I don't know how often you spend time just thinking about those that are far from God. I don't know how often you spend time in prayer thinking about judgment is coming, and maybe for you, you, you're ready. Maybe you're ready, but they're not. Do you even care? Are you willing to look stupid? Are you willing to be opposed? Are you willing to be ostracized? Are you willing to be attacked? Are you willing to be mocked? Because you are moving in where everybody else is withdrawing and hiding. When the church needs to be pressing in, are you with us? Or are you hibernating until the end? There's too much at stake. No one knew it. Do we know it? Judgment's coming. And the call needs to come from our mouths. And just as a side note, men, if you just want to look up here, I'm just thinking about Noah's role in his position. Why did Noah's wife and Noah's kids and in-laws, why did they make it on the ark? Because there was one man that listened to God, obeyed God, and led the way. Men, it's time to wake up and lead the way. Others are going to face things because you're asleep at the wheel. Men, we need to rise up. We need to lead the way. We need to bring our families in. Those that are close, we're influencing. How are we influencing them? And hopefully it's towards Jesus. That's your mantra. That's the flag you're waving. Team Jesus, we're in this together. We are a family team on mission. This is not a solo deal. We do it together. And no one knew that. And I love, love how it ends. Verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, right? Noah and his family were brought safely through the water. Here's the connection. I love it. Old Testament, New Testament, verse 21. He's like, this is like a picture. It's kind of like baptism, which is only a symbol, but it corresponds to this safely in Christ, safely in God, being rescued because he's the one that saves you. Not as a removal of dirt. It's not just baptism, getting, getting washed from the body. But this is an appeal to God for a good conscience. And what is it all about? It's all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's all about the resurrection. So who has gone into heaven and who is at the right hand of God? With angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Jesus is there. That's where our hope lies. Are you with him? And, and I think this is a great, great spot to just ask. If you are a follower of Jesus, why have you not gone public with baptism? If you have made an inward decision, it's got to go public for your sake and for the church's sake, for your testimony and for the testimony of the church. God's people do not stay quiet. They step out. They don't have a private, quiet faith. They have a bold, loud faith that is gentle and respectful. And the first steps, and I don't know about you, but if you have, if you have questions about baptism as, as I did, it took me five years. Somebody say you're a slow learner. Yeah, remind me. It took me five years to get baptized, right? A lot of confusion. Coming out of Lutheranism and then crazy charismania in the charismatic church and then crazy fundamental Baptistville and then Bible world, and I'm like, wow, could somebody just clarify? Because there's a lot of ideas, a lot of thoughts, a lot of denominational 
conundrums that I'm facing here of what in the world is up with this baptism thing. And there's clarity. It does not save. It does not cleanse. It is a going public as an image of that's what happened to me. I'm safe. I'm in the ark. I'm in the water. And I'm coming out of the water just like Jesus went into the tomb and came out. He rose again, the resurrected king. Every issue has got to come back to this. Life, death, resurrection of Jesus. All right, everybody ready? Here we go. Here we go. Somebody say, land the plane. Oh, baby. Oh, baby. Jesus Christ suffered for our sins. Peter is saying, Jesus Christ, he's righteous. Everyone else is unrighteous. Jesus Christ is God who became a man to bring men to God. Jesus Christ's body, it died on the cross, looking defeated. But Jesus Christ's spirit endures the cross in victory. Jesus Christ rose from the, the dead. He conquered hell. He opened heaven. Jesus Christ rules over everyone and everything right now from his heavenly throne. Baptism is how Christians make their private faith in Jesus public. And if God can save Noah and his family, he can save you and he can save anybody that you love because if we turn to him, we are saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. And that we can go public, unashamed, bold, even though everyone else is telling us to shut up, be quiet, get out of the way, get in line. And we would say now more than ever, no, I'm not doing it. I'm taking a stand. I don't care what you think. I'm not troubled by what your thoughts and opinions of me are. I'm not afraid of you anymore. I fear my God. I'm going to give an account to my God. And I don't give a rip about my likes on social media. I care about God's affirmation of me. And that never changes. If I'm with him, I don't care who's against me. I hope that's your heart. I hope that's rising up. Say that today, as we take communion, that we could remember it's all about Jesus. And if you're not all about Jesus, that's a problem. You're in trouble. If you are not for him, all in with him, it's not going to be long before you stray from him. Now more than ever, we need him. It is my passion for the mission so consuming that it's more important to see others saved than to stay comfortable. As the worship team comes up, we prepare for communion. Just ask that question one more time. Everybody see that up there? Is my passion for the mission to make disciples proclaim the gospel, is it so consuming that it's more important to see others saved than to stay comfortable?